0: Here we are in the Lord's house. We see that today we celebrate again anew what Christ has done for us, taking communion today and celebrating all that Christ has done on our behalf, ushering in for us uh, a new and greater covenant. Let's uh, go before the Lord before we continue um, exploring the the beautiful bridge between the old and the new covenants in uh, Malachi chapter 3. Father God, we come into your presence grateful, grateful for the opportunity to come before you with boldness, with joy, with confidence because of what Christ has done on our behalf. Lord God, we thank you for the opportunity to be reminded yet again of your sacrifice and its sufficiency, its completeness, Lord God. We just uh, pray that as we draw near to your word this morning, we would be open and teachable through your Holy Spirit, that we would be convicted. And that we would be called to action as your followers. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we begin our fifth week of study in the book of Malachi. We're going to cover the very last verse of chapter 2 and the first few verses of chapter 3. This is our, our fourth accusation. We discussed that Malachi is a bit like a legal proceeding with God bringing charges against his people, specifically against The priests, in the time of um, coming back out of exile, coming back to Judah, the priests are being called out for um, several different sins, offenses, infractions of the covenant with God. And this fourth infraction, so far we've seen them being accused of forgetting that God has loved them. We've seen them accused of idolatry and adultery. And today the accusation has much to do with them doubting God's justice, doubting what God has promised to them through the prophets, through the scriptures, through the different covenants. And so we begin today with verse 17 of chapter 2. It's one little verse that kind of hangs off by itself at the end. Most of your Bibles will have a a caption and then just one verse before we get into chapter 3. So let's read the uh, text that we'll look at today from verse 17 of chapter 2 through verse 5 of chapter 3. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, How have we wearied him? By saying, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, Where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger. And he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? But he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, and against those who swear falsely. Against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, and the widow and the fatherless. Against those who thrust aside the sojourner. And do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. The crux of the accusation that we see in verse 217 is is really, uh, again, this question-and-answer style that Malachi, God's messenger, uses. He says, You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? This question-and-answer thing And the term weariness, which we've seen several times now in the book of Malachi, shows that God is tired of seeing these same sinful patterns. And as I look at this particular text, I know as a parent there are times where questions are repeated by our children and they can tire us out. If you were to picture for just a moment a road trip, this is the proverbial, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? And the people of Judah are crying out to God and they're saying, Look, we're in this situation that doesn't seem to end. There is injustice all around us. And they ask him for his justice. But perhaps more frustrating than that when you're on a road trip, and the are we there yet, there's the backseat driver tendency that often we have, right? Where our driving skills are called into question. That's even more frustrating, right? Like, haven't, have I ever gotten us into an accident? Right? Have I ever gotten us into some situation that has warranted this distrust that I'm seeing here? So imagine, if you will, for just a moment, what God must feel like with his people saying, you keep asking me if we're there yet, and you keep asking me about my driving abilities, right? This is God, sovereign God, just God, and his character is being called into question by his backseat drivers. How interesting is this? He says, But you have wearied him. How have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? So as the people of Judah are looking to God for some answers, for some justice as they look at their situation, God responds to them. And he says, in the first place, don't mistake my patience for approval. Of the sin that's going on. The uh, word that is used there is delight. He delights in them. The people of Israel may have been so m- confused by God's apparent inaction in taking justice that they think he's approving of the sin that's going on. Now, we can see this in, in our society, too. We can uh, go down the road and see a church with a large rainbow flag, for example, and we can assume that God's apparent lack of intervention in this situation is a passive approval of sorts. But that's not the case. God is intentionally, sovereignly, relenting his justice. We know from a text we'll look at together today in Second Peter that patience in executing his judgment is all about his grace and his offering of opportunities to repent. The bigger question that I see here is the people of Israel asking, where is the God of justice? Why isn't God doing anything? And to me, this echoes of a chapter that um, is, is among my favorites in the Bible, and that's in Jeremiah chapter 12. That was a text we looked at together here several years back during our study of the biblical theology of Babylon, and it warrants looking at it again today. Go with me, if you will, to Jeremiah chapter 12. Again, Jeremiah, another brother with the spiritual gift of sarcasm, he, uh, his caption here is his complaint, Jeremiah's complaint, and he cries out to God, and what he says echoes what we see here in Malachi 2.17. He says, righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you. What a way to go before the throne. You are righteous, but I still have a complaint. Yet I would plead my case before you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all the treacherous thrive? And Jeremiah goes on to speak of the wicked. He says, you plant them and they take root. They grow and produce fruit. You are near in their mouth and far from their heart. But you, O Lord, know me and you see me and test my heart towards you. I'm going to stop there for just a minute. Let's think about this. Jeremiah goes before God, and he says, I have this complaint. There's all this injustice. There's all these things going on. I have all these problems, and you're not intervening. The same thing that the priests are saying in Malachi 2.17. Why aren't you doing anything about it? And then Jeremiah boldly says, but you, O Lord, know me, and you see me, and test my heart towards you. Going back to the road trip thing for a minute, I'm not sure if anyone here has had the opportunity to be pulled over by law enforcement before. I'm not admitting that I have or haven't. I'm just using this as a hypothetical, of course. If you were to be pulled over and you were to say, Officer, I was going 75, but everybody else was going 90. How far is that argument going to get you? Are you going to get a ticket or are you not going to get a ticket? Speed limit 65, you're going 75? It doesn't matter what everybody else was doing. It matters that you... We're not compliant with the law. And so Jeremiah, as he boldly comes before the Lord and says, look, all these sinners, but you know me. (laughs) And what does Jeremiah tell us later? There is no one who does good. The heart is wicked. We are all guilty before God. So to cry out for him in justice would be a bit like saying, but look at everybody else. Look what they're doing, Officer. So Jeremiah continues and he says, Pull them out like sheep for the slaughter and set them apart for the day of slaughter. How long will the land mourn and the grass of every field wither? For the evil of those who dwell in it, the beasts and the birds are swept away because they said, He will not see our latter end. And uh, verse 8, Jeremiah's complaint is met with a response from the Lord. He says, If you have raced with men on foot and they have wearied you, how will you compete with horses? And if in a safe land you are so trusting, what will you do in the thicket of Jordan? And God goes on to tell Jeremiah, you think it's bad now, it's going to get worse. And I think this is very interesting as it ties into our study from the book of Acts, and we understand that those who follow Christ ought to expect hardship, ought to expect persecution, ought to expect all of these things. And so God's response to Jeremiah is, you're complaining about this injustice it's only going to get worse. Check yourself. Going back to Malachi chapter now 3, we see God's very interesting and unexpected response to verse 17. It looks like we have two separate thoughts. It looks like there's a transition from one text to another. But what we instead see is God responding very evidently to their concern. And he begins with a word, behold. And we find that word twice in this verse. We also find the word suddenly. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Again, that term, the Lord of hosts, that we see so commonly in this text, the Lord of hosts is the God of angel armies, the God who has sovereign control over all the situation that Judah and the surrounding nations are going through. This God is using the term behold to announce his coming. And this is a very clear messianic text. And so I'm extremely excited to delve into this with you as we see all of it pointing to Messiah. So as the people of Judah are crying out, for the apparent injustices and asking for God to intervene, God restores and refreshes them on his promise. I am coming. I will take care of this. Huh. But there's some danger in those words. Behold, I send my messenger. So we see a couple of words repeated here. We see behold twice. Okay? Going back to the word Malachi, what does Malachi mean? God's messenger right? That same term messenger is what's used for an angel or someone who goes before a king to herald them. And so now we see this word behold, and this is a word that you would say to announce the coming of a king. He says, behold, I will send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. Those of you who are students of the scripture and many of you have sat under, solid biblical teaching for years, know that we understand this to be pointed to John the Baptist. So let's take a quick New Testament um, adventure here and go to Luke chapter 1. And I love how Malachi intertwines with the, the whole tapestry of Scripture. and We see how God's word is all one unified work, and we can see God's faithfulness in fulfilling his prophecies. Luke, written by Luke is the only New Testament book we have written by a Gentile. That's really interesting. It's particularly interesting when we see the detail with which Luke tells us about John the Baptist. Look at verse 5 of Luke chapter 1. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a, what? A priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Elizabeth. I don't know if that gives anybody else just a little bit of goosebumps, but we're talking in the book of Malachi about a message being delivered to a group of priests, unfaithful, sinful priests that have now cried out to God for his injustice, and he promises them that his justice is coming. And curiously enough, when God sends this messenger and breaks those 400 years of silence, he takes his message to a Levite, married to a descendant of the Levites. How perfect is God's plan? And we're told this by a Gentile. What's a Levite to a Gentile? But he tells us this. Look together, verse 6 of Luke 1. And they were both, speaking of Zechariah and Elizabeth, righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and the statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now he was serving as a priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood. He was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Remember this incense, this frankincense, this aroma is representing the prayers of God's people. He goes in to offer this before the people of God. This is an incredible duty, an incredible honor, and something that Zechariah had to very specifically prepare himself to do. He did this with fear and trepidation. Verse 10, And the whole multitude of people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. So picture this. He's going in to the temple. He's going in knowing that going in unprepared and unclean could result in his death. And to encounter an angel of the Lord might have been the last thing he thought he'd see. And it could well have been. And he will turn the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before them in the spirit and the power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, and to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. That text there we'll see together in about two more weeks. This is specific fulfillment of the words of Malachi. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, the children to their fathers, and he will make the for the Lord a people prepared. So here it is, after four hundred years, words that Zechariah would have known, and now the angel is speaking this to him. Verse 18 And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which were fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at the delay in, at his delay in the temple. They're waiting to see if he was, like, dead. <laughs> like, he, he's taking a while to come out. What's going on in there? And he comes out, unable to speak. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went home. He went to his home. And after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, The Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. Here we see the messenger, the one who is going to come before the Messiah, preparing a way for him, being foretold to Zechariah the messenger. Let's go ahead one chapter. Sorry, still in chapter one. Verse 67. We see Zechariah now with his son in hand. He's gone through months of the uh, divine jinx you, right? He's been il- unable to talk He's conveyed clearly what his son's name is to be, and he understands his son's unique role as the messenger going before and preparing the Lord and the Lord's people. Zechariah connects the dots between the prophecy in Malachi and what has just transpired in his own life in a unique and supernatural way. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by his mouth of his holy prophets from of old, including Malachi, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew, and he became strong in in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. John the Baptist comes on the scene. Before he's even old enough to talk, by way of Gabriel, by the way of Zechariah, by the way of God's divine speaking, it was made known that this child would be the one to prepare the way. Prepare the way for whom? Let's go back to Malachi chapter 3. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. The commentaries on this text are really interesting. Because of the repeated words, it can be a bit confusing to understand. We have behold twice, We've got messenger a couple of different times in a book written by a guy called My Messenger, right? So who is this messenger talking about? How do we know how many messengers we're dealing with here? What we see here is the first messenger we know to be pointing to John the Baptist. And the second time he uses messenger, it says, And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. This is pointing to Messiah, this is what the, the priests of Judah were waiting for. In, in the midst of all of their sins, in the midst of all of their disappointment with Temple 2.0, in the midst of their inability to worship God in spirit and in truth, they still know that they're holding out for another promise from the Lord. How like that? How much are we like that in people, right? God promises us something, he fulfills it, and we're still waiting for one more thing, right? He promised the people of Israel that they'd be brought out of exile, but it wasn't good enough that they were out of exile. They were still longing for Messiah. And here we are today as new covenant believers. We've been brought out of exile and we're still yearning for Messiah. We're waiting for not his first return, but his second one. There's still this bit of discontent in us. And so God says, the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, who you're waiting for, it's kind of a bit of, irony or sarcasm that he uses the term in whom you delight, right? Because we see back in 2.17, the people are saying that God delights in sin, right? And God kind of turns that around and says, you know what you're really going to delight in? You're going to delight in the Messiah coming. And so he, he points ahead to the messenger of the covenant, to Christ. Back to Luke, our Gentile doctor friend, Chapter 2, verse 22, we see him, the messenger of the covenant, appearing suddenly in the temple. And look in what an unexpected way. So the priests in the time of Judah, in the province of Judah, in the time of Malachi, may have been expecting justice and the conquering just God to come to his temple. God does fulfill the prophecy, but look how. And when the time came for for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him, Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him and it had been revealed to him by the holy spirit that he should not see death and still he had seen the lord's christ and he came into the spirit he came in the spirit into the temple and when the parents brought the child jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law he took him up in his arms and blessed god and said lord now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all people a light for revelation to the gentiles Here it is, the Lord suddenly coming into his temple, but how unexpected. What a plot twist. If you were to take the priests who are receiving this message at the time of Malachi and ask them what came to their mind, the last thing they would have expected would be a newborn child being brought into the temple for dedication, according to the law of Moses. But Simeon, very much filled with and in tune with the Holy Spirit, recognizes that this child is unlike any other. And so we have God's plan being put into place, and before these men are even in their ministry, we see the messenger, John the Baptist, and the messenger of the covenant, the Messiah, coming through the message of the Holy Spirit in the temple. The temple. How, how amazing that God brings this whole plan together and fulfills these promises about his temple in the most unexpected of ways. Back to Malachi chapter 3, verse 2. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. So the priests are asking for the God of justice to come. But do they really know what they're asking for? The last couple of weeks I've been um, uh, binge-watching The Band of Brothers with one of my sons. Uh, I can't recommend this uh, for its uh, violent content necessarily, but it has been an incredible learning piece for us, and one of the things that I think has been most vivid to me is a particular scene, for those of you who have seen that mini-series, where we have a group of men who are completely surrounded by Germans in the forest outside of Bastogne, and there appears to be no hope. These guys are cut off, they're low on munitions, they're low on food, and the only thing they know how to do is call in for artillery and so they use their World War II uh, radio equipment and they call an artillery and they give the rough position and they're, they're excited when they hear the first whistle of an artillery shell. That's ours. That is coming to save us. But for those of you who have seen that, you'll know that those artillery shells were a bit imprecise. And when the, the smoke and the fire and the explosion and the wrath of that artillery ended, they'd find that the guy in the trench next to them got hit. They'd find that their own had been decimated by that artillery. What an amazing illustration when we think of what we ask for in God's wrath. God, send your wrath. But if we understand the implications of friendly fire, the people that you and I love that don't have Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, they will be casualties of that wrath. Before we we call in for that, we ought to recognize the consequences that has. God is holding back that wrath so that we have an opportunity to share our salvation and share what Christ has done with us with others. Without that, it would be horrible to see that smoke clearing and understand the weight of God's wrath. And so God warns and he says, But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? Be careful what you ask for, my people when you ask for god's wrath let's go to second peter chapter 2 as new covenant believers we recognize and we long for god's justice we see a world around us that doesn't believe that christ is who he says he is they don't believe that christ is going to return as he's promised second peter chapter 3, I'm going to read through this chapter because I see so many parallels between these texts and so much for us to, to glean from this as new covenant believers. Peter says, This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, The scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and, and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, And the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since we are waiting for these, be diligent and be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. Peter warns those new covenant believers, you're waiting for justice. The world doesn't believe that God is coming to execute that justice, but just know that as you're waiting, that is God's grace. God is holding back his wrath so that there would be repentance. The priests in the time of Malachi needed to understand that God waiting to unveil his plan was an opportunity for them to repent. For us today, the same holds true. The word hasten that Pastor John shared with us last week, we are hastening the day of his return. But in the meantime, there is much to be done in sharing the salvation that Christ offers with others. To Malachi chapter 3. For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of soap, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. A couple of really interesting words here. We have the word refine, which is used a couple of times, and we have this idea of silver and gold. If you were to look up the word refine and do some search, you'll find that the, the concept is very prevalent in the Old Testament prophets. In the major and the minor prophets, you have this idea of refining. And whenever we come across that word, we identify it with a remnant, with a a subset of a whole. that's really important. As we go through the book of Malachi, we've recognized that the message is specifically to the priestly group. The use of this idea, remnant, would have brought the same thing in mind. If we go to Zechariah chapter 13, we see this refining idea yet again. Zechariah written about a hundred or so years before Malachi, has some similarities in his message. And in verses 7 through 9, we see this idea of, of a refiner. It says, "'Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me,' declares the Lord of hosts. "'Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. "'I will turn my hand against the little ones. "'In the whole land,' declares the Lord,' Two thirds shall be cut off, and one third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire, and I will refine them as one refines silver, and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name, and I will answer them. I will say, They are my people. And they will say, The Lord is my God. This idea of refining is a, is a difficult concept for us to grasp, but what God is saying is, He takes the whole, two thirds. Are destroyed, and the other third comes out precious and refined. For those of us who are called saints because of what Christ has done on our behalf, need to understand that we have been called and set apart. But that is not without the assurance of some pain along the way. This life that we know is sanctification, it is being purified. The process of refining would be done with very high temperatures, costly. And to come out of that, you don't come out unscathed. I love the parallels to the First Peter study that the women are doing. The idea of this refining process is much like exile. The remnants are those who are set a, set apart. And in First Peter chapter two, we see some similar verbiage used by Peter as he talks about their time in exile. How beautiful to see these parallels. He says, chapter 1 of First Peter, verse 15. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call upon him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you are re- ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your father's. Not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again. Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. A message given to a remnant group going through this refining, sanctifying process as exiles, as a remnant group. God's promise is that he will save some, that he will refine them, that he will sanctify them, and he will purify them. But if you look at this text in Malachi, he says he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them as gold and silver. We know that in scripture we have types, right? We have the sons of Adam. Who's the son of Adam? Well, all of humanity. Who's the son of Abraham? Well, the Jewish people. So who's the son of Levi? It's a priestly group. It's a subset yet again. And so, when we understand what Malachi is talking about here, we see this connected through words that Peter gives us. You are a royal priesthood. We see this through the book of Hebrews and understand that we now, as new covenant believers, have been given rights to be priests as if we were of the, the tribe of Levi, right? So, the subset's being called out, and God says, Look, you're asking for justice, you're asking for me to come. I will come, but I will begin my purification with the priests, with this group, right? So when we ask for God's judgment, we must recognize that he's going to deal with his people first. So be careful what you ask for. Be careful. When you pray for God to to correct all the things that are going wrong in in the world around you, know that his Holy Spirit and his divine plan is to deal with us who have been called to be holy first. That's called sanctification. That's called refining, and it's going to hurt. <laughs> we know this, and we praise God for it, right? Because of this new plan, this new covenant, verse 4 of Malachi 3, then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. <laughs> through the messenger of the covenant who came, through Christ, now, the sacrifices of those who are priests, which is us, have been made acceptable. One verse we looked at together a couple weeks back is Romans chapter 15, where Paul explains just a little bit about his priestly role and about the types of offering that he is able to give to the Lord and that are accepted by the Lord. Romans 15, 15, But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God, to be a minister of Christ to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Part of Paul's work as a priest, a new covenant priest, is to share the message of the gospel to the Gentiles, and those Gentiles who have been won to salvation are an offering to the Lord our ministry of evangelism as believers is offering to the Lord. Last chapter of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 13, again we see an acceptable offering from the new covenant group of priests. Verse 15 of Hebrews 13 says, Through him, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to god what an amazing text we see a couple of things that are an acceptable sacrifice that we can offer the first thing is the fruit of our lips acknowledging god's praise you know sharing our faith sharing the gospel with nonbelievers is tough to do but one of the Easiest ways to do that is to sing God's praise. God has been so good in this. God has been good in this. Give testimony to others of what God has done. That is an offering that is acceptable to the Lord. The fruit of lips that acknowledge his name, that honors him. And he accepts that sacrifice. And verse 16 of Hebrews 13 says, Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. the the sharing of hospitality, which is talked about in Hebrews 13, the sharing of resources among the community of believers, those things are a sacrifice and an offering that is acceptable to God. Those are acceptable because of what Christ has done. Malachi chapter 3, where we're leaving off today, leaves us yet again on a bit of a cliffhanger and sort of a heavy note. 3.5 says, Then, I will draw near to you for judgment. Notice who he's drawing near to. Draw near to you, to the to the group of priests. I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, and against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. God wants to deal with his house first. Matthew chapter 21, we see the Lord coming suddenly into his temple and we see Christ dealing with the money changers. There's so much in Malachi that's tied to the priests and to the temple. And so it's an incredible fulfillment of of prophecy to see the Messiah himself walk into the temple and deal with the injustice that's happening in his own house. Matthew 21, verse 12. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called the house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what they are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read, Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out to the city of Bethany and lodged there. What we see here is Christ coming into the temple, and his his issue wasn't with money per se being exchanged in the church, his issue was that there was buying and selling of these sacrifices. There was no personal cost to raising an animal without spot or blemish. There were even cases where they may have been buying sacrifices from foreigners, which was prohibited under Mosaic law. And God takes great offense at these unacceptable sacrifices. And he cleanses the temple and drives them out, preparing the way for the new covenant believer to ultimately understand that he is purifying for himself himself temple where acceptable worship is going to happen. And that is his church that he's prepared, that he's built up, and that he's allowed to be a part of offering worship to him in spirit and truth. And so we can understand that this message of where is the God of justice is that God has come to deal with his people first and his faithfulness in fulfilling his promises is unchanging. Are we there yet? We're going to be there. His sovereign direction is trustworthy. His promises will be fulfilled. And while we're waiting on the last of those promises, be busy in offering quickly praise with our lips. Message of salvation to those who are in the trench next to us. God's wrath is coming. But praise God for his patience that some might be saved. Let's pray. Father God, we we thank you that you have been gracious in allowing your wrath to to be held back. You have allowed your wrath to be satisfied through your son Jesus. And because of that, we are engrafted into your people. We who were not your people are now your people. We who were before unworthy to even draw near to you have now been invited to be priests. God, we pray that we would take that call to holiness very seriously and that as we await your return, we would be very much concerned with the salvation of others. That we would be very much concerned with seeing others saved from your imminent wrath. God, you are not slow in keeping your promises. But you desire that all would come to repentance. Use us, your people, in proclaiming that message and in trusting in your justice, Lord God. And in the meantime, allow us to live in in holy fear, worshiping you in spirit and in truth. In the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen.